A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome to the show. I am happy that you've joined our rowdy little band of uh, wrong thinkers. And our show is brought to you in part by Monticello College, Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, as well as AltaBank. I've got some kind words to say about each of these sponsors. Going to save those for a little bit later. So for, I, I'm just going to I have to start prefacing each episode with a welcome to those of you who are finding this for the first time. And I'm only doing this because I'm getting messages from more and more people going, hey, I just discovered your program and gave it a listen. And I'm glad I did. And I, and I guess someone out there, whoever you are, thank you. Where do I send the royalty checks? Uh, you uh, you've been opening your mouth. You've been telling people about it because they're beginning to find this program. And so I just want to give by way of quick introduction, you know, what do I stand for? You know, what what am I trying to accomplish here? First and foremost, you have to understand that you are under no obligation whatsoever to agree with anything that you hear me say or anything that you hear me share. Your worldview is up to you. That's something you've got to take ownership of. And I'm here in in my capacity as your servant to uh, to offer some food for thought that you may not encounter elsewhere. Mainstream media sources, they kind of have their own take on things. And, you know, frankly, some people are, are quite comfortable with that. Some people prefer a little more excitement. They like more of the Alex Jones approach to uh, what's going on in life. So I guess what I'm saying is if, if this isn't for you, I'm not going to feel cheated or like, oh, man, you know, if only I could have could have shaped this somehow to make it more appealing. The bottom line is this message is not for everyone. And I don't mean that in an elitist, it's too good for you, pearls before swine kind of way. All I'm getting at is uh, some people have placed a higher priority on having a truthful look at the world as it is, see things as they are, call them what they are, but also do so from a standpoint where we're not bringing more anger into an already volatile situation. Now, as you listen, you'll hear I'm... I'm Trying, but I'm certainly not. Uh, I, I'm not perfect at doing this. For the most part, I think uh, I think we're onto something here. And and I have to say that one of the people who I credit with with giving me the idea that maybe just maybe there's a better way of conveying truth to people who are seeking after truth, and that's uh, that's Paul Rosenberg. Now you regularly hear me share his essays. I've got another one today that I think is uh, one of the most timely. He normally is uh, right on the money. What, to, what has led me to Paul Rosenberg as a trusted source of information is that, number one, I've had a chance to, to see and read his, uh, his take on things for almost a decade. I think that's a, that's a pretty good sample size as far as, well, let's see if he's a flash in the pan, if he's you know, just you know, playing to the crowd, or if this is what his, his views consistently are like. And this guy has become a very trusted voice of reason to me because he's insightful, he's unflinching. And everything he writes is always tempered with humility. 
several years ago, he made the suggestion that when it comes to talking to the brainwashed, there are a couple things that we have to remember. Number one, all of us are brainwashed. Now, if that makes you mad or if that makes you feel like, hey, I'm getting backed into a corner, think about this. All of us are brainwashed with how we think the world is or how we've been told this is what you have to think about how the world is versus how it really operates. Every one of us is at a different point in that journey of of waking up to realize, hey, if there was something really wrong, the news media would tell us about it, right? Well, you start to question these things after your eyes have begun to open. But that doesn't mean that everybody's in the same place in their journey. It doesn't mean that everybody is, uh, is, should think and, and see things exactly the same. What it does mean, though, is that there is more truth than we are being told. And this is where Paul Rosenberg, I think, has been just an, an invaluable resource in, in helping to explain how to, to talk to people who may or may not be ready for truth, but to, but to do it in a way that leaves the door open for them to come to it on their own terms. This is the second part of what he taught. Lose the need to win. Now, as you can imagine, I mean, I've, look, I've, I've been on social media somewhat in the last couple of weeks. Um, I've, I've kind of limited my take because it's, it's, so, it's so corrosive. I mean, it's just abrasive everywhere you turn. There's this scorched earth mentality. And it's hard for me not to want to respond. And sometimes I'll start. I'll sit down and I've got this perfect pithy put down or put them in their place kind of answer. And... Maybe it's my conscience. Maybe it's experience. Maybe it's, you know, Paul Rosenberg's recommendation just ringing in the back of my mind. Just hold off. You don't need to put anybody in their place. You don't need to prove anything to anybody. If you're going to say something, say it with love and move on. You don't have to convince anyone. And I'm grateful I've taken this approach. I think it keeps doors open. People that you have beaten into submission, who you finally got them to admit, okay, 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 you're right, you're right. I mean, do you really expect they feel grateful? Okay, I've humiliated you in front of everyone. I've, you know, forced you to admit that I'm right. You may now thank me. That's, that's a little presumptuous. What I have found instead is when you take that, uh, that Paul Rosenberg approach, you speak the truth with love, you let them come to terms with it as they choose to come to terms with it almost without exception down the road you will cross paths again and you're still going to be on good terms right because it wasn't about destroying one another or conquering the other person it was about planting a seed you'll be surprised how often that seed has taken root and you'll be surprised how often someone will say i can see where you're coming from sometimes they may agree with you i'm not guaranteeing that doesn't happen all the time but that's not really the point is it The point is you were able to enlarge their point of view. Hopefully what they shared enlarged your point of view. Somebody didn't have to win in order for it to have been a productive discussion. That's a long way to get around to. This is what I've learned from Paul Rosenberg. Now, he asks a question that uh, is of great relevance because we are we are struggling right now with the concept of free speech. Do we need to redefine what free speech is? I mean, for crying out loud, social media didn't exist back then. And, you know, there are a lot of people, I think, who have have let their guard down thinking, but if we could just silence 
those who have a differing point of view or those whose point of view um, is, is being contrasted with ours, you know, things will get easier. If we can just shut those guys up, everything's going to be great. But it's not because we need to be able to ask questions. And that is the name of Paul's latest essay. Are we still allowed to ask questions? Now, I'm going to tell you right up front. Yes, we're talking about questions about the 2020 election. So if if that's enough to send you into shutdown mode because, okay, we're in tinfoil hat territory, you know, maybe this is a good time to skip out. But if you want to understand why it's important that we be able to ask questions, I would encourage you to pull up a chair. And here's what Paul has to say. He says, aside from a breathless stream of headlines and a few random inputs, I haven't seen many facts regarding the events of January 6th. Circumstances made things that way for me. And he says, now I'm glad they did because it set me up to ask the, it set me up for the really important issue. Am I allowed to ask questions about this or am I not? Now he says, bear in mind that I haven't voted or voted for or otherwise championed Mr. Trump, nor did I support his opponents. He says, more than that, I really want to know the answers to these questions, especially given the fallout from January 6th. Honest answers to these questions matter a good deal. So he says, I'm going to stick out my neck. I'm going to ask questions about this event that seem pertinent. Now hear him out and tell me whether you think these questions are relevant. Question number one, what was the actual timeline? He says, as I was driving on the 6th, I flipped on the radio and heard Mr. Trump speaking. I was aware that there was going to be a rally in the Capitol, so I listened for a minute or so, just enough to get the tone of it. A rally on the same day electoral votes were counted concerned me. He says, what I actually heard from Mr. Trump, however, was less than his strongest and included something like, I know you're going to go down there, combined with patriotically and peacefully. And he says, hearing him mention peacefully comforted me, plus the fact that American conservatives take pride in being peaceful and courteous. And so he says, I was shocked, rather shocked, not many minutes later when a friend called and said something about the Capitol. He says, I responded along the lines of it sounds harmless enough, whereupon I learned that protesters were already inside the building. Since then, he says, I've seen claims Mr. Trump was a mile away in the middle of his speech when the Capitol building was broken into. He says, so between my own observations and the claims, I'd really like to know what happened when. But he says, again, honestly, I don't know. What troubles me is I haven't seen the claim refuted, only ignored. All right, we've got a few more. We're going to come back to them in just a few moments. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Look, I saw the phone line ringing here a moment ago, and I, don't, I want you to know I'm really, I'm not ignoring you. But I, I want to get through this, uh, this essay from Paul Rosenberg. Are we still allowed to ask questions? I will open up the phone lines here in a couple of minutes. So give me a little patience, and I'll get you on the line with me. So question number two as to uh, are we still allowed to ask questions? He wants to know concerning the events of January 6th. Were agents provocateur involved? He said one of the random things he came across was a report from Michael Yon, perhaps the most experienced war reporter in the world, claiming BLM and Antifa agents provocateur led the break-in. 
Now, he says, this is a guy who should be able to tell. And he says, I've seen further reports that someone named Sullivan was a known BLM leader and was at the vanguard of people entering the building. By the way, I'm going to give a shameless plug for uh, one of the the podcasts, which you can find on the Fed by Ravens Media Network. Um, it's called The Trump Tater. Don't let the name throw you. Jamie Renda is close friends with the Sullivan brothers. She has uh, John Sullivan on her program. That's the brother of uh, James Sullivan, who was uh, this known BLM leader that was there at the Capitol. So if you want to get some inside scoop, I'm telling you, you can go to the source. And uh, and again, that's on Fed by Ravens, the Trump tater. He says, Paul Rosenberg says, look, I don't know that BLM and Antifa were involved with this, but he says, I'd very much like to know. And once again, I haven't seen this question addressed. Perhaps I've missed something conclusive on this, but he says the question deserves to be addressed with facts. Question number three is thinking an election was rigged considered insane. He says, that's the impression I get about half from about half of my headline stream, that anyone believing the recent election was rigged is flat out insane. But he says, for me, that's a real problem because I've experienced election rigging personally. And on top of that, I've known a lot of inside players in my home state, giving me many more reasons to believe in election rigging. Now, that's not proof that the November election was rigged, of course. But he says, it's clearly a reason for me to take seriously the possibility And if I'm not allowed to ask, I have to wonder why. He says, as best as I can tell, none of the loud voices, the news networks, etc., have analyzed what has been claimed as evidence. So again, he says, I may have missed something, but I simply haven't seen it. So as far as I know, the courts have never examined it. They got rid of the cases on procedural grounds in every case I recall. Nor did Congress. The insurrection interrupted that, after which it was ignored. He says, that sounds very convenient to me, but again, I could have missed a lot. So again, I'd like to know, is such a question permissible or will I be punished for asking it? All right. Question number four, aside from trespassing in a few broken windows, what harm was done? Now, again, fair question. He says, so far as I know, the answer is not much, but though he says I may have missed something. A lady named Ashley Babbitt was shot and killed, but she was killed by the police, not the protesters. And details about other reported deaths are spotty. So he says, I think my question is valid. Several hundred politicians were inconvenienced, of course. But he says that's hardly a major issue. A congressional baseball team being murderously shot up not too long ago was a big deal, but that came and went with almost none of the fanfare and fallout we've seen since January 6th. So again, I ask precisely. What harm was done? And he says, I ask especially because I've seen words like sacred applied to this. And to me, that reeks of idolatry and dogma, the opposites of reason and proportion. Oh, he has one other question. I'm glad he asks this one. Where are the civil libertarians? Now, Paul Rosenberg says, I'll admit this one ticks me off. Tens of thousands of people have been ejected from the public square, not because they caused actual harm, but because someone thinks they're part of an insurrection. Bear in mind that almost none of these people were anywhere near Washington, D.C. on the 6th. All they did was to fall within some algorithm produced by a surveillance capitalism company, Facebook, Google, Twitter, etc. He says, I further heard that people have lost jobs and financing in precisely the same manner. They had nothing to do with the event, 
but were somehow associated with it. Now, either that's a witch hunt or there's a massive there's massive and direct evidence against all those people. And it sure doesn't seem like that's the case. Since when do we impose penalties for insurrection without a serious finding of fact? And Ron Paul, for goodness sake, he's a congenitally polite doctor, now old and retired. Disagree with him all you like, but to eject him from the public square is naked thuggery. So again, he asks, where are all the civil libertarians? They're absent without leave, as best I can tell. It was either that or it was always a charade. Their high-sounding rhetoric was just sucker bait for the rubes. Now, here's the kicker. He's asked some pretty pointed questions here, right? I'll bet some of those questions, at least one of them, probably made you uncomfortable. But here's the thing. If these things cannot be asked, if we cannot ask these questions, he says, confident that we'll be met with reason and proportion, we're living in a tyranny. That's where the rubber meets the road. What appears to be happening is an illogical statement being writ very large. This is the statement. Some people broke into the Capitol and a few windows were broken. Therefore, our lives are in danger and we must stomp out all evildoers. Now, he says any connection between the first part of that sentence and the second is uncertain and as best as I can tell, unproven. And yet the responses to January 6th treat it as completely verified. That's about as good a breakdown as I've seen, by the way, of what the narrative is. So if these questions are not permissible, we are living in tyranny, and particularly under the tyranny of those who punish the asking. So many times, he says, we see the true importance of things only once we lose them. And this moment has been revelatory in every way. We now see why free speech must be held sacrosanct. Free speech, he says, is inherently oppositional to tyranny. It's the canary in our gold mine. And when we see free speech abandoned and punished, we can be certain that tyranny is upon us. Now, I feel like I have a dog in this fight. I feel like the free speech that I exercise every day, every time that I open this microphone. I feel like that's at risk. Because uh, I'll be the first to admit, I hold some unconventional views. I ask you to consider whether those unconventional views are worth a look. I'm not influential enough to be a threat to anybody, so so far I really haven't even had any pushback. I can't think of anything that uh, that has been you know removed or otherwise threatened on Facebook. I'm not begging for that, by the way. I'm just saying somehow I seem to fly under the radar which either means I need to up my game or I'm, I'm, I'm falling short in some area. I don't know. But the concern that we are seeing a desire to punish people for thinking an unpopular thought, for holding an unpopular opinion. And it could, it, I don't care if we're talking, you know, judicial or governmental punishment, or we're simply talking about the cancel culture mob getting after them and denying them the ability to make a living or to live in peace or, you know, anything like that. I feel like I have a dog in this fight and I feel like there is risk in asking these questions, but I add my voice to the chorus of those who say it's worth it. Whatever risks are, are involved it's worth it to ask these kind of things and understand that the masses probably don't want to hear anything about it. They're ready to move on. They're scared. People whose desire for truth is stronger than their attachment to their beliefs 
on the other hand, want to know. They want to know the answers to these questions and other questions that yet that have yet to be asked. And the crazy thing about it is. That's part of living as a free person. That is part of taking responsibility for your life. You've got to be willing to ask those questions. And I understand full well, it's scary. You might not like the answer that you get. So let us speak out. Now let's do it wisely, okay? Let's not chase, you know, every conspiracy around the tree ten times. But let's do what we can to keep the truth out there in the open. People are looking. Let's help them find it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Now is the time to call, assuming that uh, you've been trying to get through. 801-331-8113. I have time and inclination to take your phone calls. I also want to point you towards another essay from uh, Paul Rosenberg. This is part of an ongoing series that he's been doing uh, regarding common fallacies. And, and look, this is not saying, you know, you should read this and then become this incredible debater and just, you know, go around crushing everybody like Gary Spence on steroids. No, it's it's more knowing how to recognize when some of these rhetorical devices are being used to either intimidate you into silence or to cause you to question, you know, your own line of reasoning. It's not about uh, this isn't just how to win an argument. It's how to avoid being maneuvered into a corner by someone who's who's really good at applying these fallacies fallacy number 12 in this series. And I would again, encourage you go through the entire series. You'll be amazed at how often you encounter these kind of things in a day-to-day discussion. This is fallacy. Number 12 correlation implies causation. It's also called cum hoc ergo ergo propter hoc with this. Therefore, because of this, it's an assumption that one thing caused the other because there's a connection between them. Now, he says we covered some of the basics of this back in fallacy number three. That's the questionable cause. Nevertheless, confusing correlation with causation is very common. And he says, I want to give it some space of its own. Most typically, correlation implying causation is used to shill for governments or other organs of a longstanding status quo system. And the typical argument goes something like this. Our democracy is not something to be worshipped. I'm not sure I want to support it at all. And the person responding says, oh, you want to go back to the old days when babies were lucky to survive four years? Now, what Alice is is doing here, she's the one who responds, is implying causation to a government or model of government. She's claiming that it caused a drop in infant mortality simply by its presence. Now, it didn't, of course. It was thousands of doctors, nurses, researchers, and others over centuries who finally overcame infant mortality. Alice's assumption, moreover, is delivered with an accusation that Bob is endorsing infant deaths. In effect, he's being given a choice, either endorse the state or endorse dead babies. And this is not too stark a rendering of Bob's choice. The emotional impact that Alice produces is is precisely that. Now, Alice may simply be repeating what she's heard other people say to win arguments, but that changes nothing about the impact of her words. 
Furthermore, her words carry an implied threat that she's able to tell other people about this, turning them rabidly against Bob. And if others are standing around listening, Alice isn't threatening at all, but actively calling Bob a monster and turning people against him. Do you get the feeling we've seen this one play out kind of, I don't know, on a national scale? Just, I'm just wondering, just wondering aloud. Alice then has weaponized the correlation implying causation fallacy and used it to injure Bob. And by the way, this is one of the primary tools of totalitarian regimes. You can use the famous Reichstag fire as an example. In early 1933, Adolf Hitler became the chancellor of Germany. Now, at the time, it was a fairly minor position, answerable to the president and responsible to the parliament. Just a few weeks later, a fire was started at the Reichstag, the German parliament building, causing serious damage. A communist was blamed for the fire, perhaps rightly and perhaps not, but immediately a correlation was made between a communist threat to the German state and the fire. A Reichstag fire decree followed almost immediately suspending freedom of expression and the secrecy of the mail and telephone calls, among other things. Publications not considered friendly to the cause were removed from circulation. Now, the communists were the party in parliament that most obstructed the Nazis, of course. Capitalizing on fear and rhetoric, an enabling act was passed less than a month later, effectively making Hitler the dictator of Germany. And he says all of this was based on the assumption that the communists of Germany collectively were attacking ordinary Germans and all they held dear. The man blamed for setting the fire was all but certainly acting alone, but that didn't matter in the storm of emotion. The communists were demonized, becoming non-persons, and were expelled both formally and informally. And so we see that implying causation from correlation can have massive consequences. And bear in mind that this was no worse than what Alice did to Bob in the first example, save that the role of Alice was played by newspapers, radio stations, and politicians. So here's how the trick works. And he says the trick works because of several factors. Fear, whether it be fear of ridicule, violence, loss of reputation, or whatever, fear makes humans functionally stupid. Then there's pattern recognition. Humans are exceptionally good at seeing patterns, and so seeing one thing leading into another comes very easily to us. If this process is helped along by pointing to a conclusion, and then if reason is displaced with strong emotions, it's very easy for us to see the mandated conclusion and refrain from, from questioning it. Then there's time pressures. The emotional pressures applied in cases like we've covered usually involve time pressures along the lines of make a decision right now or we'll know that you favor dead babies. And then there's a thing he calls cultured sociopathy. What he calls cultured sociopathy, some academics refer to as something similar as acquired sociopathy. That's when we become sociopathic in certain areas of life. In other words, we learn to displace, ignore, or subdue empathy in certain situations. In those areas, we become sociopathic. This is a larger subject, he says, than we'll cover here, but you can read more about it in in another uh, paper that that he's written. So when Alice launches her attack at Bob, she may be sociopathic at that moment. And when slapped with some of all of the above, the easiest thing to do by far is to simply go along with it. That would have been the case for Bob. It was certainly the case for the Germans of 1933. So here's what to keep in mind. The correlation implies causation fallacy can arrive in situations that are either highly charged or not. If you're dealing with it, 
You know, if, if it's if it doesn't arrive, dealing with it is simple. You just say something like, how exactly did you reach your conclusion, Alice? It seems to me that a piece may be missing. And if Alice doesn't freak out at that point, the two of you will have no problem in identifying the truth of her statement or the lack thereof. Now, if the situation is emotionally charged, however, you'll need to buy some time. As usual, something along the lines of, wait, please, I don't think I understand what you've said. Are you saying that... He says this method of, t- of buying time works very well on an individual level. Emotions will still fly, but they tend to wane, especially if you're calm and start dissecting facts rather than responding with, with opposing emotions. And he says in the case of mass applications of this fallacy, as with the Reichstag fire, things become more complicated. As millions of people may be involved, all of them feeding on authoritative news sources speaking from the same script. Most people seeing this either comply or simply pull back, rightly feeling threatened. But he says, if open and free speech is not present and strongly protected, the mass application of the correlation causation fallacy can only be confronted on the personal level. And that with both difficulty and risk. This is the real reason why free speech must be held sacrosanct. Now, you're probably asking yourself, what can I do? Maybe you're not going to be the one who's sitting there speaking truth. Maybe you will see someone being hooted down for speaking something that, while unpopular, may nonetheless be the truth. Consider standing up for them. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, it comes with risk. Still the right thing to do. Caller, welcome to the show. Hello, is that me? Hi, Ray. Well, hi, Brian. How are you? Fantastic. What's on your mind? Well, um... You know, I'm, I'm wondering why you don't have a lot of callers. I mean, I, I would think it's probably because of the heavy, heavy, heavy material that you present so much of it. I mean, hopefully I'm of average intelligence, um, but I, I have to take notes. You know, I have to really study and re-listen to your programs to really absorb a lot of it. I mean, it's heavy, heavy, deep stuff. You know, I, maybe I'm kind of in my old age. I'm more of a simple man, and, and I have found that um, just going to church and, and and worshiping God with fellow worshipers, you know, I can see that that it changes me within, you know, in a spiritual way. Um, where a lot of times you're talking about psychological or therapy or, you know, behavior modification, behavior uh, ideas, you know, to change people, truth, realization of things, you know, but to absorb it, you know, but but I found that, um, you know, that, I, I mean, some people have trouble believing there's a God, especially in this proof scientific age. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, but, you know, or even the God of nature, you know, um, oh, we're at the music. Okay, yeah. But I really appreciate your program. I really okay. like it. And I, I do take notes and I do think about a lot of things you say. And, and you know, it, it helps me to walk a, a higher road. You can also check the show notes. I put those in on the com every time I do the show. Ray, thanks for your call. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. If I can just if I can just say one more thing about uh, Ray's comments, I think he is uh, I think he is dead on. A lot of people right now are doing kind of a gut check, and I don't blame them. Because frankly, since about January sixth, I've had this this nagging sensation of of being like in this perpetual state of freefall. And you know, I'm not saying look, I don't know anything about anything. I just see the speed with which some things are shaping up, and and I wonder. Following the inauguration or perhaps, you know, as part of the inaugural uh, festivities. I just have to wonder what's what's the next move from there? Because from from my vantage point, it looks like there is an unprecedented grab for power. I wonder how many executive orders we're going to see fall, you know, immediately after that uh, that oath is taken. Um, Very interesting time. And, of course, on top of this, we have people challenging free speech. And, you know, can we even say what free speech is? Maybe we need to outlaw some of this. Oh, and the pandemic going on on top of it. By the way, I'm just going to throw a quick plug out here for a piece that will be included in today's show notes. James Bovard, Pandemic Security Theater. And, look, I I don't mean to make light of the people who have faced or have uh, suffered with COVID. I think most of us have had it. In one way, shape, or form, or another. Some people seriously, others not. But it's really clear that the people who are trying to consolidate power are using this uh, for un- unprecedented power grabs. And you see this all around you in some of the different little things to where, uh, for instance, like the, I'm sure you've been in the grocery store, you see the little directional arrows, one way only in, in this uh, aisle. I try to be a polite person, but you know what? I'm not going to walk halfway around a grocery store just so I can go the correct direction if the box of cereal that I need is 20 steps away. Sorry. If that makes me a bad person, I guess it will. But uh, it's it's just those arrows. Do they really stop the spread of anything? Well, we don't know, but people feel better. And I think the big gist of, of the article here from uh, James Bovard, he talks about an encounter he had with someone who was was taking exception to the fact that he wasn't using the entrance only door for entrance. He was actually trying to 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 leave. And this self-appointed enforcer stopped him and had this uh, this exchange with him and he says, "You know, it's crazy. People have bought into this enough that they are willing to voluntarily become enforcers themselves." There must be some rationale to all the insanity. And so they sign on and and they want to help make sure that the rules are going to be observed, even if they make no sense at all. This is one of the drawbacks that the lockdowns have unleashed. And he says it will not be easily cleaned up. It'll likely take many years before people can think clearly and rationally again. Well, this is this is part of what I'm trying to accomplish on a day to day basis. Not tell you what to think so you can think clearly and rationally, but to suggest that there are more pieces to the puzzle. Look at those pieces and hopefully you can make that decision for yourself. I do subscribe to the idea that the single most important we have, important duty we have as citizens is to think clearly and rationally and independently during times of crisis. Can we agree that we're at a time of crisis? Okay, we should we should be doing what we can then to make sure that we are seeing things clearly and not just being misled. 
All right, one final thought here. This one just grabbed my attention, partly because I really like Annie Holmquist's writing and partly because we go the rounds with my kids sometimes over chores. The title here, Chores Build Self-Confidence and Crush Self-Esteem. Annie Holmquist writes, with mass homeschooling becoming the new norm starting early last year, one might easily assume that parents have by now adjusted to their new roles as teachers and work-from-home employees, in addition to their parenting responsibilities. Now, she says that may be true for some, but I tend to think those people are in the minority. And a piece in the Irish Times confirms this notion. The article consists of several testimonials from parents trying to adjust to the faux homeschooling that their school districts have thrust upon them. While some found that they had smoothed out the bugs to function at a reasonable level, others were left unsatisfied. That includes one mother who said she only got four hours of sleep each night last week. Such short nights were the result of too many responsibilities, including juggling house chores and dealing with frustrated and bored kids. Uh Uh-oh. Never say you're bored around an older person who knows what that really means. It means I'm not busy enough. So she says this new mother's new responsibilities are unlikely to be alleviated until the pandemic comes to an end. But her statement about chores and bored kids suggests there is one potentially stress-relieving solution right under her nose. Combine the two. You see where she's going, right? It's easy for many parents to view their children as the small, helpless babies they first met. But the fact is, those children grow up. And if they're a school age, they're probably well-equipped to take on more responsibility than we generally give them. Having bored children pick up the slack around the house isn't mean. It's home education at its finest. Homeschooling veterans Harvey and Laurie Bluedorn elaborate on this fact in their book, Teaching the Trivium, when they say, do not do for yourself what your child can do for you. Their rationale for such a statement all comes back to the idea of self-esteem. Your child needs to esteem himself lower than others, beginning with his parents. He can gather the clothes for laundry and he can fold the laundry. Then he can do the laundry. He can set the table and wash the dishes. Then he can help fix the meals. He can vacuum the floor and dust the furniture. Then he can wash the windows. Now, Annie Holmquist says, lest parents fear they will become slave drivers by inflicting such a chore regimen upon their children. The Blue Dorns have some heartening advice. If you do all this for him, he will develop a sense of self-esteem. I am so important that everyone ought to do things for me. But if he learns to do it for himself, then he will develop a notion of self-confidence. I can do it myself. And if he learns to do it for you, then he will develop the notion of self-usefulness. I can be helpful and I am needed around here. I like that difference. She says, building self-esteem in a child is a high priority in our day. Yet the way the Blue Dorns describe self-esteem doesn't make it sound all that desirable. Astute parents would rather build confidence and usefulness in their children, and they can do so by training them to take many responsibilities on around the home, which in turn helps relieve parents worn out by household chores and housebound kids. So if you feel you're stuck at home, trying to hold down a job while overseeing your child's education. Use this time to take advantage. Have your kids look through cookbooks, plan menus, write grocery lists, and help with or take full responsibility for preparing a certain meal. Make chores fun by pairing your children up and having contests to complete chores in record time, or suggesting they tell stories while washing the dishes, or even role play while they vacuum or clean the bathroom. Turn chores into a privilege that can only be done by those who work hard 
and learn a job well. It offers surprises here and there, like a special kind of ice cream, a new book, or a unique outing, not as a bribe, but as a reward to those who do their jobs well. She says you may be surprised. Your load may be lightened. Your children may turn into confident, useful young children who are ahead of the curve in their journey toward responsible adulthood. I kind of like that. And Lord knows we've gone the rounds with my kids. My kids still under, don't understand why uh, when, when it comes to cleaning up after the dog, for instance, how come they're always the ones who get stuck with that? And maybe it's wrong of me to do this, but uh, I hearken back to the original contract. And the contract we had with them was this. You guys want a dog, right? Yeah, 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 we want the dog. Then you agree that you'll clean up after him? Yes, anything, anything at all. I wisely got that on video, so... There is no wiggle room. You guys committed to this. That is your part of the agreement. Now, there's also, you know, the understanding that uh, I have spent uh, many long hours picking up dog poop in my life. And frankly, it's one of those things I'd like to take a break from, given the opportunity. Builds character, I believe my parents told me. So I'm using a similar approach with my kids. By the way, they, they don't buy it either, but... But they do a good job of, of cleaning up after the dog. And I, I have to say, it makes me proud when I see them reach the point where they can do a load of laundry themselves. We're still working on the folding thing. I don't know. I, even I still struggle to, to uh, accept the notion that somebody other than mom can probably fold this stuff. <laughs> she just is so much neater and knows where it all goes. But it's fun to see them take on new skills. It's fun to see them take on that responsibility. And if you want your kids to grow up to be productive people, isn't that really what it's all about? Don't become dependent on somebody. Don't become dependent on government to do it all for you or somebody else to do it all for you. Stand up and learn how to do it yourself. I have a feeling that lessons like this are going to be of even greater importance in the days ahead. So I think I'm going to probably have to uh, continue doing what I'm recommending. If nothing else, I'm sure there's plenty that I have to learn, and this is one of the ways to do it. Thanks again for joining us today. This is The Brian Hyde Show.